Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have an awesome guest. John White is the Chief Medical Officer at WebMD. In this episode, we talk about his journey and why he still sees patients, social determinants of health, what excites him about digital healthcare and artificial intelligence, and why access to information leads to more engaged patients. This is a great episode. I hope you guys enjoyed as much as I did. Hey, John, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. First of all, thank you for joining me. I'm really excited for this conversation. Uh, But for those who don't know who you are, do you mind giving us a little background about yourself? Sure. So I'm John White. I'm a physician uh, based primarily in the Washington, D.C. area. And I'm currently the chief medical officer at WebMD, which is one of the world's largest platforms of medical information, both for consumers uh, and to health uh, professionals. That's awesome. Um, So I would like to start with your journey because it's quite Mm -hmm. an interesting one and one that's really, I don't like using the word off the beaten path because I think that that kind of is like, it's hard or it's not normal, but could you talk about your journey a little bit after you graduated from med school? You know, and it's a little different today. I, I see more physicians on health professionals doing other things, but I'm older. So when I started on this journey, I I really had to find the path myself. So I knew early on that I wanted to be involved in health policy issues. And at first I thought I'd be a surgeon and, you know, that wasn't the path for me because that way, you know, you really have to spend a lot of time in the OR. It's hard to have a lot of other interests. But I went to the University of Pennsylvania, I took these classes in health economics, and I thought, this is really interesting about the healthcare system and and how it works. But, you know, I listened to other people, they said, you know, become a good physician, John, you know, do a residency, do a fellowship, everyone from Duke does a fellowship. Um, And then I, I really started to reach out and say, I wanted to do health policy, be involved in, in how decisions are made. And I'll tell you, I, I met with the resistance. Medicine is very hierarchical. So the attitude was work five years in clinic, you know, serve on some quality committees and and it's almost, you know, pay your dues. And I just thought, you know what, I want to see patients, but I I don't want to see patients as the only thing that I would do. And, And I lucked out that I knew some people in government in D.C. And ultimately there was an opportunity to come to Washington now nearly 25 years ago almost working at Medicare on coverage coding and payment issues. And, and that really started my journey in, in terms of health policy. But, but I'll tell you, I always and still do see patients. So currently I only see one day a week, but I've done that throughout my entire professional career. I've never given it up, but I never conformed and said, you know, I, I have to do it every day in order to get ahead. It, it's a little easier now than it was back then, because there's more people like me. Uh, but it, it was really one where I had to craft my own path. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's, um, and that's kind of why I wanted to reach out to you. I mean, for other reasons too, but, um, you know, like you said today, now it's a little bit easier. I mean, easier is, I mean, mm -hmm. but the same stigmas exist, right? Like when you're, you know, I've talked to a bunch of, um, people that got their doctorate degree and they, for, they didn't go to residency track or the fellowship mm -hmm. track. And there's, and they said there was this huge stigma against them because they're like, Hey, you, that's the next step. Right. Sure. And then when you did it, it was even, you know, you're not a real doctor. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the response, especially from other doctors. <laughs> that's usually what they say, or they'll be like, uh, how often do you, you don't see patients? Do you, they're always surprised when I say that I still see patients. So there was kind of the stigma or you don't really want to be a doctor. Or, or why are you doing these other things that somehow you might have failed in another area that's kind of the what's presumed as the path that you would take. So that, some of that stigma has been removed, but there's still kind of that attitude. So what do you, what do you, what kind of advice do you have for uh, people that are kind of in that spot? You know, they just graduated med school, farms, whatever school they're going to, yeah, and they don't want to go through residency or fellowship or whatever. Like what kind of advice yeah. do you give them? I really applaud those people because there's so many unhappy clinicians, healthcare providers, because they figured out, you know, during the training program that it wasn't for them, but you often have a lot of debt and you think, well, what else are you going to do? So maybe you'll just, you know, kind of muscle through it. But that often is a very challenging process. And, and that's why people often have burnout in the healthcare system. There, there's multiple reasons why that is. But what I tell people is you have to reach out to other people. Right. Find those people who have a career like you. I get a lot of requests from people on LinkedIn and other platforms saying, oh, I want to hear about your career journey because they're thinking about something like that. And you have to be open minded. You don't have to conform to the establishment that too many people feel they need to. That attitude of work in clinic for five or 10 years. Well, why? For what purpose? Because you did it. So I have to do it. But I have a different skill set nowadays that, that people can learn. So I think that's important to find other people, talk to multiple people, not just one. And, and you'll find there's pretty much a consistency of advice. Now, for me, I wanted to see patients. So it wasn't like I didn't want to see them at all. I just wanted to do other things as well. And I think that has helped me in all of my jobs. Because when I see patients, they don't know my day job. They don't know I'm chief medical officer of WebMD or they don't know I worked at FDA or whatever. But I learn a lot from listening to them, what their concerns are, what the mechanics are as a patient in terms of interacting with a healthcare system. So that's been enormously rewarding. And, and that's why I do it. Not because I have to do it, but I want to do it. I think it makes me a better health policy person, a better communicator. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And I think that you know, it's kind of like the same things that we say with like management or whatever, like, you know, like, Hey, what do you know? You're kind of so far removed from yeah. it. You know, it's been 10, 20 years since you've practiced, not in a bad way, but you know, things mm -hmm. change as, as slow as healthcare moves, things in healthcare move pretty quickly. Right. Yeah. I, I had to tell people at FDA, uh, let me tell you how e-prescribing really works. <laughs> let me tell you if you want me to enter another system that's not part of the health record. It's not just going to happen. Like, it's just not, it, you know, even though you think it's only a few minutes, it, it, that's just not how the workflow goes in a clinic. Or even as we talk about important aspects of social determinants of health, you know, I hear from my colleagues and I experience the attitude is don't ask me to do one more thing, right? I don't have time to do one more thing. 
And to have that knowledge is very helpful as, as you continue your career path. But you really do have to forge your own one and you have to be somewhat novel in, in terms of your approach. Yeah, um, I completely agree. And then I think also like our professions, you know, it's very linear, right? Like it's, we, we're not, we're not risk takers by right. and like our personalities are not generally risk takers. We're told, hey, if the evidence fits it, then we follow the evidence. We're not making things up. And all mm-hmm. that kind of like, there's a certain personality that goes into medicine, right? And I think, and the and then anyone that kind of breaks that mold is kind of seen as an outlier, right? And that's right. And, and just in society in general, right? You know, if you're an outlier, you're kind of I'm not saying you looked weirdly, but it's it's harder for you because you're just not the same as everyone else. That's exactly right. And and there is a little bit of that's not how I did it. You know, mm-hmm. I paid my dues. I had it harder. Every generation of physicians says they had it harder than you know, the one that comes after them. And and it's just very different. So when they would say, oh, they, you know, worked every other night, you know, for months at a time, it was a different level of acuity for patients. It was a different level of the interventions that could be done and needed to be done. So it, it's very different with each generation and, and we really shouldn't judge them to previous standards. 100% agree. And one of my biggest pet peeves is when we have residents or students uh, and then we're doing stuff and the preceptor's like, well, I had to do it. So why can't, yeah. why shouldn't they? I'm like, that's not the point of education. The point of education mm-hmm. is to make others better, not to make them miserable. You know, and I Absolutely. think that, that's one thing that always got me um, with my, because I would tell my, my pre, uh, when I was running my own rotations, I would tell them like, they would be like, oh, we should have them do this and this. I'm like, how is that serving them? It's yeah. not. So I'm not, I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to have them do that. Well, we had to do it. I'm like, I don't care. We weren't in the, we weren't, we weren't in the power position. Like the cycle has to break at some point and why can't we break it? I love that. Breaking the cycle and making it better. Yeah. Cause that's, I mean, that's kind of what we're trying to do with medicine, right? A lot of it, a lot of it is breaking the cycle and we can kind of touch on public policy a little bit, you know, breaking the cycle of what people have, right? Social determinants of health is is a term that's being thrown around a lot, and I don't think people truly understand what it means. Uh, could you kind of go over what SDOH is? Yeah. And <laughs> we'll start with that first. Sure. You know, we focus a lot in terms of many diseases, especially in the United States and in the developed world, often are diseases of lifestyle. Genetics is a small component, as we think about in cancer and heart disease and diabetes, particularly <laughs> type 2. It's mostly caused by lifestyle. And we typically think that it's about access to the healthcare system, right? So we should have more clinics. We should have more doctors and other health professionals. But it's those other elements of life, those social determinants that impact our health in terms of access to a top-notch educational system. We know that when people have low literacy levels, particularly health literacy, they don't do as well. And that makes sense that they may not understand risks versus benefits. Um, They may not have progressed as far in education, so they don't have as good of a job, so they may not have health insurance. It's also about access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And, you know, we talk about that all the time in terms of a healthy diet. And, And, you know, a lot of times people will be like, oh, you know, there's a supermarket five miles, you know, from every person in the United States. Okay, well, five miles is far if you don't have a car. And and that's an average. So, you know, that's an element as well. We want people to be physically active. Well, if you don't have a safe place to go and be outside, that's very hard to do. And one could argue that it's some of these social determinants 
that have more of an impact ultimately on the healthcare system than access to health professionals and health institutions. And that's something that we really started to realize over the last few years. Too often it's focused on, we need to have the latest gadgets, a laser that can detect you know, your heart rate and rhythm from, you know, 100 meters away. Uh, that was one of the things developed before the pandemic. Well, what real value does that have nowadays? And, and shouldn't we be more focused or at least equally as focused on these social determinants? We know today where I live in Washington, D.C., that where you live on the metro line often impacts how long you live. And you think within five mile radius of the Capitol Dome, one of the most powerful cities in the world, we have these tremendous disparities and changes in length of life, primarily where you live. And other people phrase it as your zip code matters as much as your genetic code. And that's what we're talking about in, in a very simplistic way when we're thinking about social determinants of health. Yeah, I recently wrote an article about this, um, about, you know, your zip codes mattering mm -hmm. more than access to healthcare. Sure. And, th and these scientists, they said that a lot of factors play in and access to healthcare was not as large of an large of a contributor to length of mm -hmm. like your life as other as people thought. And Absolutely. it was and I think that that's the one thing, like every time the people talk about social determinants of health, the word health is in there. So they think, oh, OK, we need to get them to see a doctor. We need to do this. Mm -hmm. OK. People who've never seen patients, and I mean, when people, we can see all the patients in the world, but if they don't, if we say, hey, go get the script or, hey, you know, eat healthier. But mm -hmm. if they're in like a food desert, in food desert in the sense that, well, people say food swamp, right? There's mm -hmm. no grocery store, but there's a lot of fast food going on. So you're asking this mother of three kids that's by herself working two jobs to, you know, when is she going to find time to take care of yeah. kids, go grocery shopping, cook food, all this stuff like I don't think people really realize the plight that people are actually going through. They think it's yeah. like, oh, this person is just non-compliant. They just don't want to be healthy. Mm -hmm. no, no one wants to feel bad. Like, right. it's just it's it's just they're forced in that in yeah. in a sense. What I often talk about nowadays is that health happens outside the doctor's office. Like, I care about your blood pressure when you come and see me once, twice a year, or or more often, once every three years. What really matters is what's your blood pressure, what's your heart rate, what's your blood sugar, what's your weight on a daily basis, not the one or two times you come in to the doctor's office. 100%. And that's the other thing, too. Like, people think that seeing the, like, what's the, I think the average uh, patient visit is like seven minutes, right? And if you think about it, you're seeing your doctor once a year, if you're lucky, right? Seven minute encounter, and they're going to take care of your diabetes, hypertension, high lipids in that seven minutes. No. Okay. Sure. Let's say. You're seeing them twice a year, three times a year. Now it's 21 minutes. Like you're living a whole life outside of that doctor's office. And that kind of goes to health literacy too, right? Like a lot of times patients want to get better, but they just don't know how. And I remember and I was, I read something that you said and it really struck me was because sometimes we don't even know how to be healthy, right? Because we're not taught it. We're just taught, okay, there's a medication for this. I mean, I'm a pharmacist, so we were... Oh, there's this medication does this, this medication does this, this medication does this. When a, when a provider, when a doctor approaches me like, hey, what medication we should, should we put them on? We talk about lifestyle things a little bit, but it's not a huge component of our education. That's the case everywhere, you know, in every health profession. We should be talking more about nutrition, which, which we don't. You know, we don't talk about, you know, how do you, you cook healthy foods? 
You know, the other big issue is health numeracy. We don't talk enough about that in terms of understanding t- statistics. What does one in 10,000 mean? What does one in four mean? If I said it reduces your risk of disease by 0.25%, is that high or is that low? You know, and I'll tell you, I, I saw a patient the other day, and this is what's great about seeing patients. And, uh, you know, I did their Framingham, you know, risk score and the ACCHA risk calculator to talk about the role of statins in primary prevention. And I said, um, your risk of having a heart attack or stroke in the next, you know, five to 10 years is 8%, which is really kind of a threshold in a way, you know, to start statins. And uh, she said to me, 8%, that's not that high. <laughs> See, that's all relative. And we have to understand where where patients are and, and what their values are and what their goals are. Because for many ways in, in the healthcare system, we would say 8%, we probably should start them you know, on a statin, um, but we often don't communicate it well to patients either. And and that's where I think we're often paternalistic and we think we know everything. And that's where to, to understand from that person what they think in terms of their risk is serious for them. Yeah, And that's their risk today. That doesn't mean that's going to be their risk next year if they don't change behaviors. 100%. I think that um, I, many times in my career, a lot of times, I mean, there was this weird, this crazy statistic that um, when patients leave, they don't more well, about half of them don't oh, yeah. even know why they're in the hospital, you know, why they left the hospital. What was their mm-hmm. diagnosis? I remember this vividly where a lady came in for a DVT. She was on, uh, I can't remember the exact drug, but uh, it was a blood thinner, right? It wasn't worth sure. it, but it was one of them. Yeah. Um, and she wasn't taking it. And the, they were like, hey, you need to take this because she had a PE. And eventually they were like, hey, Zan, do you mind just talking to her? And I just went there and I was, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm like some great person or something, but I just went in there and I just laid it into her straight. I'm like, hey, why are you not taking, I asked her to say, hey, why are you not taking this? Oh, she just didn't know why she needed it. She didn't mm-hmm. realize that the PE that she had is linked to the DVT yeah. that she had. And that if she had been taking this, she might not have had the DVT. And, then, she's, and then she was like, and I mean, to us it makes sense, right? But to her, it didn't. And she didn't, she didn't connect the two. No one ever really told her the two things are connected yeah. and this medication is for this, this thing. And then after that, she started taking it. And they're like, oh, my God, what magic? I'm like, I literally just explained to her what the medication was for and why she was on it. I mean, that was it. That's literally all I did. That's classic in, in terms of patients don't understand why they're taking medications. But you took the time to explain it. And, and the pushback from a lot of clinicians would be, why well, simply don't have that much time. Uh, especially as you pointed out, it's seven minutes, maybe it's 10 minutes. That's not enough to go over all the issues that many patients have, especially as they get older. I also give patients permission to say they're not taking their medications and then understand why that is. Because often patients want to please the doctor. I find that especially, it's somewhat generational, not to stereotype, but older patients. And where I work, it's a closed system. So I can see in the formulary when they get <laughs> their medications. So, you know, I'll have patients typically with high blood pressure and I'll see they haven't filled their medication in, you know, four or five months. And I know they had like a, a 30 day supply or 60 day supply. So I'll say, you know, I know they don't have any medication. And when I ask them, because I, I say, you know, do you ever forget medication? They'll be like, no. And I'll be like, you know, it, it, it's common for people to forget medications maybe once a week. She said, no. And then I said, I'm only asking because your blood pressure is high. So if you're currently taking your medication, then I know you need more. And if you're not, then um, 
we'll restart your medication. And again, she still was like, oh, I think I'm taking them. So she waffled in a little. I was like, well, <laughs> you haven't filled your prescription. <laughs> and so then she'd be like, well, is it really that long? Like, I guess it has been that long. But but that took, you know, 10 minutes of sleuthing and and really giving them permission to acknowledge that sometimes life gets in the way or it's hard to remember or they just don't know why they're taking it or they don't feel well with it. You know, for her, she felt it wasn't making a difference. That, that's what I got at the end, which we often see in, in some issues. Um, but it's having that ability to spend time with patients, which which can be difficult for many of our colleagues, that there are certain metrics that they need to meet. Um, and, and it's challenging. No, 100%. I think that the patient interview is something that is so vital, but it, we spend so little time on it, unfortunately. Um, like you said, there's a lot of different reasons for it. Just time. Mm -hmm. I mean, and people don't realize the metrics that a lot of these physicians have to meet. And, you know, you and I can talk yeah. about go round and round circles uh, about that. But it's it's just, it's like I tell people, the system is, and I might be a little, you know, jaded or whatever, but the system is set up for us to fail. But the fact that we have so many victories is a testament to the people that work in the system. Sure. And like, if you can give these people, us, just a little bit of help, imagine what could actually happen, right? Mm. And that's kind of, so we'll, we'll kind of pivot into like the digital health part of it. You're um, young, though. You shouldn't be jaded already. <laughs> that, that's the challenge that, that we have. And I think part of that is what what are the shared values that everyone has? Yeah, I was listening to this one thing and he said this. Um, I had talked to this one doctor and he said, healthcare is works exactly the way it's set up to work. It's just that we get we get jaded or we get angry because it doesn't it doesn't meet our values of what we think healthcare is. Hmm. He's, so I found that fascinating because it's true, right? Like. The, the rules and I mean you know better you were you were you were in the policy room and all that stuff doing health policy but like the rules and stuff we have to work within the rules right we but like and this also goes back to this is why we need people like yourself and others that have like empathy for not just the patient but also the practitioners to be in those yeah. rooms to be helping you know mold these policies because we come from like hey we're practicing this versus somebody who's just kind of you know, either, you know, they went to the doctor once in a while or they had their mom go to the doctor and they just, they just viewed from that aspect of it. See, I would argue, you probably haven't heard this before, <laughs> that too often policy, especially in terms of payment in government, policies are set up to prevent fraud and abuse. Mm -hmm. And and I see that time and time again when I work there. So they create these policies because they think people are going to game the system. So they create all these challenges in terms of getting care or denials that happen up front. And that's part of the problem because they'll argue, well, we don't have the administrative capability to, to really evaluate all of these, especially in the Medicare system, which is very large. And, and that's, that's the problem. We, we see that the, the policy is often set up in a way to prevent people from gaming the system instead of creating the incentives to make sure that, that people get the right treatment at the right time that's appropriate for them. And, and I don't see that often enough. I 100% agree with you. I, I have these arguments, not a lot, but um, I have these arguments where people are like, well, you know, what if this person takes advantage of the system? So I'm like, you're going to, yeah. you're going to hold 90% of people back from something that's so amazing just because 10 percent of the people are gaming the system. You're never going to create a system that people are not going to take advantage of. Yeah. It just, it is what it is. But if it's a, 
if it's that overwhelmingly good for people, why are we worried about? It? Yeah, you can. I mean, yes, people. Some people, well, you know, whatever. But you have to. You you can. It's an iterative process. Everything in life is iterative, right? You try something, you fail, or something doesn't work right. Then you then you change a course a little bit. But as long as you're moving forward, you're not like scrapping it all together, right? I mean, that's that. It, it frustrates me when people like yeah. think like that. I'll have to hear, you'll have to tell me later who, who it is that said the healthcare system works exactly as it should, because I would argue that no, it doesn't. And that, um, you've heard this before, that we're a sick care system, mm -hmm. not a well care system. And that, that's not how it should be set up. We we treat acute disease and the system is set up that if you have access and you have resources, you get very good care. And if you don't, you're often left behind. And, and that's a big challenge. Yeah. So how, like, what are, what are things that so I guess like in the digital health world, you know, there's a lot of companies trying to do like telehealth and all mm -hmm. these things are coming along and, you know, we can say like what is working, what's not working. Like if you're talking to a digital health company and like, hey, they come to you, like, hey, John, how can we help you? How can we help you and the patients? Like what would be your advice to them? Yeah. And I should say I'm very excited about the digital health space. Mm -hmm. And I know everyone is in, especially as we talk about AI, there's a lot of people that are fearful about it. I take a, a more glass half full rather than half empty. And you and I touched briefly upon this. You know, the healthcare system in general is very traditional. They don't often adopt new technologies early on. We tend not to be early adopters. And what I'm arguing is that we need to be involved in the development of these tools now. So we really craft them in terms of what we need. Because I posted something recently on LinkedIn that got a lot of comments where I said, um, you know, I, I met with an AI company that talked about how they were going to shorten the time, despite what you said about, uh, you know, the time of the clinician visit, you know, by getting rid of some of the administrative functions and doctors would be able to see more patients during the day. Now, as an executive, that's what an executive might care about, but that's not what a clinician cares about. They don't want to see more patients. They want to be able to have more time with a patient and a patient wants more time. So they don't have the shared values. But I always say if I was running a healthcare system, I would put billboards all around the area because their hospitals and health systems are like the few people that still always put out billboards <laughs> I find on, on highways. And I'd say, bring me all your data. Bring me all your data from your smart watches, your smart jewelry, your wearables, and I will provide you better care. Because this is the point, Zane, when we talked about health happens outside the doctor's office. I'm able then to take all the data that you're collecting. And even if it's not medical grade, I can look at trends over time. I can give you a continuous glucose monitor, particularly if you have prediabetes, which we don't do, to try to help change behavior. I can develop personalized care for you. And that's what I think the power of AI is, the power of truly developing personalized treatment based on your data points. But what we have now is the healthcare system really doesn't have a way for the most part to get all of this data that you're collecting at home into the health record in a way that I can utilize as a physician. I can't use utilize it as a PDF. That's not going to help me. And I've seen patients that'll say, um, I've seen it multiple times, uh, watch says low heart rate, right? <laughs> they come in, like, I, I, what can I do with that? I have to order an EKG. Sometimes, you know, we have to do, uh, you know, a device to, to look at their heart rate over time in terms of an event monitor. And that's not always the best system. Whereas if I could utilize that data that's continuous 
I can have them do lab tests at home. And at first I thought that was a bad idea, but you know, that was my perspective as a physician, right? Very kind of paternalistic, like, oh, the data is going to the patient, but that's what patients want. And then a patient said to me, yeah, if I don't have to come into the office, drive 20 minutes, get a, get a order, then go to a lab. Like I save half the day. I'm like, but are you going to perk your finger at home? And they've, they've gotten much better, by the way. And she's like, yeah, my FSA covers it. So I thought these are the things that we have to be thinking about. And then I'm also really creating an environment for that shared decision-making because patients are also owning that data as they should. Uh, a family member recently had some heart issues and went to a cardiologist and I said to her, well, send me you know, send me your records. And she's like, well, how do I get the records? And I thought that, that's part of the problem. Like, why did, and I was like, why don't you have them already? What's your cholesterol? And she was like, I don't know, but I'm on a statin. And I thought that's part of the, the issues that we have to make it easy. I mean, she eventually got everything, but it took like a day and a half. It should be instant, right? <laughs> you should be able to go to another app or another feature and have that but that's what I would be telling people. Let's work together to develop these algorithms, to utilize this data. Everyone wants to talk about more data. We don't need more data. We need to more effectively utilize the data that we're currently collecting. You just like, I'm like smiling ear to ear because you literally just like feel like you just went into my mind and just kind of <laughs> shoot everything. Because I tell, I was reading somewhere like 70%, like it's like 70, 80% of healthcare data is just not usable. We don't use it. We're, it's not a yeah. data problem. Like we get a lot of data and like a couple of things I want to touch on, like that are like near and dear to my heart, like owning yeah. patients, owning their own healthcare record. I think people really dismiss this, but for me, it's so important because then you have control over your health. It's like renting a house versus buying a house, right? If you're Absolutely. renting a house, you're like, okay, whatever, you know, the, somebody else will take care of it. But when you're, it's your house, something breaks, you have to take care of it. I love that. And that's great. And like, we're taking that, we're taking the most personal thing to us, their health away from them by not allowing them access to the data. Not, oh, well, yeah. if they read this, they might overreact or whatever. Let them over. It's their health care. Right. Like if they want to quote we, unquote overreact, no. let them like it's, it's their we, life. We kind of talk down to patients too. 100%. Like, oh, they can't figure it out or they can't see it first. And in the system where I at, they do see their records at the same time. And first I thought that was horrible. I'm okay with it. Uh, I mean, they'll see they have a urinary tract infection before I do, and I'm not insulted by that. You know, in some ways I think it empowers patients. And, and let's be honest, you know, people need to take more responsibility too for their own care, but we also need to make it easier for them. Right. So we often don't explain enough to them. Um, we're dismissive of them. And we really need, you know, to change that perspective. But, but I love how, you know, you talk about the same thing, the amount of data that we could really utilize data more effectively. I joke around only partially that the bathroom is the future doctor's office because <laughs> I was in France. I visited this uh, tech company where the mirror actually is going to have uh, using thermography will be able to tell you your temperature oh, wow. in the morning. The toothbrush will actually be, the bristles will be able to test for strep as part of a rapid strep test. Wow. And the toilet, there's actually a device that already exists in a toilet to look at urine, mm -hmm. to look for, you know, ketones, obviously to about, you know, uh, ketoacidosis or blood sugars, as well as perhaps infection. So they, they still need FDA approval for some of that. And then there's a uh, device to put 
to look at stool for blood. So yeah. that, you know, we still have a little bit of way to go, but think about it. That's where it's going to go, right? These are going to, you mentioned about iterative. These are going to continue to get better. We need to be embracing them now, but the payment models often don't support that. That's part of the challenge as well. If we didn't have to pay for the physical infrastructure of hospitals, which we do through the Medicare program, we would be able to do much more in people's homes. Yeah. Um, I do want to touch on that, but the other thing I want to talk about what you, you had mentioned is being part of the solution, being part mm -hmm. of this as the solution is being created. And that's another thing that I try, I talk about a lot is even if you don't know what AI is, like yeah. just open up chat GPT and just start talking with it and just seeing like what it's capable I, of and what it's not capable of. Because then when you know the, the, the guardrails of what technology can, can and cannot do, then you can have a, have an honest discussion with a healthcare startup or your executive or whatever. Right. Like, and like you Absolutely. said, we have to, and like things are going to change whether you are on the bus or off the bus, mm -hmm. it's the bus is going to keep moving. And so either you embrace it and just like, see, like, and like you, and you mentioned this too, like we need to, if we, if it's kind of, kind of be like kind of the EHR, right. We weren't at the, t we weren't at the seat of the table. Right. Mm -hmm. And now everyone complains about it. AI is going to be magnitudes, magnitudes yeah. more like could be worse than that in the sense that if we don't get involved now, it can really derail a lot of things. But if we get involved now, it could also be yeah. magnitudes better for us. It can make a lot of things better for us. And sometimes the system makes it hard. I mean, you think about how we manage sepsis often in hospitals or even how we manage diabetes care in some outpatient centers with some formularies, right? There's often a small group of people that set what the criteria are for patients to get certain medications. And it's often, you know, the very senior people at institutions that often aren't seeing patients as often. And they and they help make these algorithms and then aren't transparent about it. And then sometimes we have bad outcomes. We've seen that in sepsis and we've seen that in some other areas. So it's about, you know, making sure you knock on that door and push on that door if no one answers. It's the same thing with ChatGPT. I hear from so many clinicians that like, oh, this is dangerous. It makes mistakes. Guess what? We make mistakes as doctors, as pharmacists and nurses. We have implicit biases that at least elsewhere we can find those explicit biases. So let's be realistic about our own you know, decision-making capability. The real power of AI in my feeling is in that deliberative decision-making process, not doing rejection letters and, and scheduling, but helping me understand all the data for the patient in front of me with a certain type of tumor that I can't synthesize on my own or looking for those very you know, subtle changes on imaging that may indicate early disease. That's the type of power that AI is ultimately going to bring. And we need to be involved in that now rather than complain about it later. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there's just so much that I think people get caught up in the sensationalization of AI, like, oh, you know, people go like, oh, AI is going to replace all clinicians, this yeah. and that. And like, I think it, the, and then that people are just like, it's like, oh, they're just looking at that. Like, oh, no, it's not yeah. going to replace it. And they're just fighting against that yeah. straw or man. you tune it out. You tune yeah. it out. I don't want to hear about it. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to know. I'll wait. Let me wait a while. And say, <laughs> well, we, now's not the time to be waiting no. to figure out what's going on. I love your point about try GPT, try chat GPT and other technologies. I, I've worn so much smart jewelry over the last two years to test different devices because I wanted to learn about them. And I wanted to see how data is presented. And I've engaged with a lot of companies because I want to learn more yeah. and I want to talk about 
you know, what are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? So, you know, we have a whole show about your health on tech where we really try to help educate people what's currently available, what's on the horizon, and how do you utilize this data currently? Yeah, 100%. I do want to talk about um, WebMD. Uh, You are the CMO of WebMD. Uh, WebMD is a huge platform where a lot of people go to. There's always, you know, I I always remember the office joke where Dwight's on WebMD. I know, I've heard it many times. (laughs) I didn't let you say it, but I've heard it. I still hear it every now and then. But I mean, but the thing, but, but in that joke, it also proves a point, like, right, you know, access to access to information, right? Sometimes we're hard to get a hold of. So mm-hmm. people are going online, looking for information. And, you know, uh, people like yourself and WebMD are trying to provide a platform where they can get that information and easily and understand it, right? Yeah. I've had many patients, to be honest, on the flip side, come up to me and say, because of what I read on WebMD, I went to see my doctor mm-hmm. and I had cancer diagnosed earlier or I had thyroid disease that was previously, you know, undetected. So the important thing that you mentioned is information. And, and we're a firm believer that better information is going to lead to better health. So when we talked about social determinants of health, I didn't mention information, but information is a social determinant. So if you're getting misinformation by a blogger who's saying things that just aren't based in science, you may have a bad outcome. And I've seen that in patients. I've seen it in cancer care. I've seen it in patients in diabetes that have tried these things that they read online. And, you know, our perspective is search has also changed that when you search things you know 10 years ago or even five years ago you'd print everything up and then you'd hand it to me and what would we do we'd just kind of push it to the side and do what we want now patients come to me and they say dr white i think i have costochondritis i think i have sarcoidosis sometimes they're right sometimes mm-hmm. they're not and i'm okay with that because they're more informed and more engaged we're very careful that we say we're not replacing medical decision making, you know, we're not diagnosing you, you need to talk to your doctor about your symptoms, but here are things to consider. And then we also now are focused on how do we connect you to care? You search rheumatoid arthritis, you search some orthopedic injury, we can help arrange a telemedicine appointment right now, or tomorrow, depending upon where you live, if you search signs and symptoms of STDs, we can arrange for you to get a test without having to go into a doctor and get the order separately. And at first, when I when we were doing that, I thought, mm, is that the right thing to do? We can't talk about, you know, safe sex, all these other things. But you think those people might not have gone anyway, ever. So here's things can be incremental as well. And then the other thing is every piece of our content, every piece of our content is reviewed by board, cert, board certified clinician. You can see who that person is if you scroll down to the end and we date it. And that's important to keep in mind. A lot of other health platforms do not do that. So, you know, I'm very proud of, of what we're doing in terms of really being the leader and providing, you know, some of the best health information out there and, and really connecting people to care. Yeah, no. And I think that's, I think that's one thing that people forget, uh, especially in the digital health space. Like you can give people information. Yes. I mean, well, that's even a hard thing right in itself. I do want to yeah. ask you, like, you know, do you guys, when you're writing, when you're writing these articles, mm-hmm. Do you, do you have like a certain threshold, like, hey, this has to be at a seventh grade, fifth grade, whatever, high oh, school? Oh, sure. Yeah. Level? And there's lots of, you know, algorithms that talk about, you know, literacy level, typically fourth, you know, or fifth grade level, um, because we want to make sure that people can understand what we're saying. <laughs> One of the things we're proud at WebMD, people spend, a, you know, a significant amount of time on our site. So they often, we can tell that they jump to other articles 
and, and really utilize that approach. You know, something that I've been talking about lately, I wish people treated health information as they do financial information. So you wouldn't just invest in something that a blogger said online. Or, or you read online, right? You would check the site. Like, what is this site? What you and, and do a little more research. You'd check and see if it's anybody else is saying that. And you might even ask a trusted source, hey, what do you, what do you think about this, right? Because you think it's your money. That's really important. But why when it comes to your health, are you willing to, to just try what any celebrity said about, you know, a cleanse? or, you know, some, you know, supplement that's going to, you know, cure your cancer. And, I, and that's where I think there's a di big disconnect. I agree with you. I think a lot of, and this kind of goes back to the ownership piece of it, right? Yeah. Like, I don't think people feel ownership of it and any little part of it that they can own, they'll jump to. Like, so my background is in oncology and I had a lot of, I mean, people would be like, oh man, these people are always coming in with these like supplements and stuff. And sometimes yeah. I would be too. I'm like, oh man, I got to go through all these lists is like hundred like lines mm -hmm. long. But the thing is they're trying to find a way to gain control back. Right. Yes. And that's kind of what is all going to right. We've taken so much control away from them that the only, the little bit that they can get, they'll jump on. And I, and this, and if you think about it, healthcare is one of the few things that we really don't have control over in the sense that, mm -hmm you know, things happen. And also when we go to the doctor or the healthcare system, we're just being told what to do, not how to do it. Have most of the times we're not even told how to do it. We're just told, Hey, do it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, anytime we're in a job or something and somebody tells us to do something and we usually ask a question, how do I do it? And we get a general answer or whatever, but like in healthcare, you get told what to do. You get this discharge summary that even, you know, people in healthcare don't really understand. And you're told to like, Hey, take these medications and call us. And then you call the number, you get pulled on hold for like three hours or whatever. Right. It's, it's just, it, that to me is why the people do it. And yeah. like, you know, kind of getting back to the root cause of your problem, like, you know, your patient you talked about with the high blood pressure, she just didn't think that it was working for her. Okay. That's right. And that's a perfectly fair thing. Like you may not agree with it, but that's how she feels and you can't change that. But with better information, she didn't understand the role of blood pressure in mm -hmm. increasing the risk of stroke <clears throat> and the risk of heart disease and how big of an impact it could be. So th that's part of the challenge. And then you're right. You come in and now I tell you, you're going to have to take this medication. And then you're probably, we don't even say you're going to have to take it for the rest of your life, but that's kind of the implication. And see you in a year, right? See you next year. <laughs> like that, that's just insane when you think about it and, and, and pay this X amount of money every month or every three months. And we don't even explain yeah. what yeah. it's for. Yeah. And that's why I think platforms like WebMD and such is great. Um, like, you know what? I think when patients, I think that we need to, the word democratize gets used a lot, but I do think we do need to democratize healthcare information. And I think for a couple of reasons, A, the more, the more involved patients are in their own healthcare, the better off it is. Yes, in the beginning, it might get a little, because we're not used to it right now, right? Uh, but the more they're involved, the better off we are as a healthcare system, because mm -hmm. they're going to take care of themselves more and hopefully get better. And then we'll have less people to take care of in the sense that, We'll have, I mean, we'll have the same amount of people to take care of, but hopefully people will be getting better, right? And and then also if we can provide platforms like WebMD and others out there, at least there's a place for them to go, right? Because one of the criticisms I have about, about us in general is we tell patients not to look stuff up, don't Google it, but what are we giving them as a resource? Nothing. We're telling them to call us. I don't tell patients not to Google me. <laughs> 
I want them to go to the right sites. Yeah. That, that's a thing. Yeah. Exactly. But um, I, what I was going to say, oh, if somebody wants to, I guess before I go, what, what advice, we kind of touched on this, but what advice yeah. would you have given yourself as you were coming out of med school about all the stuff that you know now? What, what advice would you have given yeah. yourself back then? You know, my advice would be, as I try to be open-minded about a career path, whereas traditionally I thought I'm going to be a surgeon, as I mentioned to you, then I thought, oh, you know, I'll go into academics and, you know, you'd be a section chief and then a chair, you know, person, and then maybe a dean or something. But I was open-minded to, to different ideas, to, to working in government, to working in and out of government, to, to going to the entertainment world at Discovery Channel and forging a path. You know, I often tell people, you know, I joke, I really haven't applied for a job <laughs> in a long time. And by what I mean is, like, I'm the first chief medical officer at WebMD. There were chief medical editors, but mine's a different role. I started a new office at FDA. That position didn't exist prior to my arrival. But I networked with people. I talked to people. I took the time to create a role that I thought would give value to a company. And sometimes people think, oh, I'm too young or, you know, I haven't put my time in. That's the old attitude of you have to pay your dues. But if you come in with the creative ideas, you think about the impact that you want to have and you reach out to people. And now more than ever, you can do it through social media. You can do it through LinkedIn. Okay, maybe people won't answer, but some others will. And you can start to have that dialogue, especially as you say, you know, th this is a path that I'm thinking about. You know, how can you, you know, help me? And then what I have found useful is ask people, you know, targeted questions too, right? And not just simply, oh, how did you get to your current role? Because nobody likes that. But, you know, as I talked about, you know, why did you decide to do a full residency and fellowship? You know, what were the obstacles that you faced? And um, I just think it, it's still a great time to be involved in healthcare, especially with all the innovations that are coming. I was just in Europe uh, doing an, uh, an interview uh, of a company in Florence. And, you know, we talked about Florence is the birthplace of the Renaissance. And I asked, are we in a renaissance of innovations in healthcare? And she thinks we are. And, and, you know, I really paused about it for a while. And I thought about it on the flight back. And I thought, you know what? We really are in a renaissance in many ways. If you think about the innovations in drug development, right, in, in terms of what we've done over the past three years relating to COVID, when we think about the diagnostic tests in terms of cancer, we still have to make some progress in terms of blood biopsies. But huge success, the role of diagnostics and better imaging, and then the role of, you know, wearables, trackers, and sensors. I, I think we are in this renaissance, and it's exciting to be a part of it. I love, I love that. And I'm, I can't have, I don't have anything to add because I do believe that too. I think that, you know, we always focus on the bad and, you know, healthcare sucks. Okay. Yeah. But how are we fixing it? And there are people now trying to fix it and they're, yeah. and we're all part of it. So I love that. But if, they, if anyone wants to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, I'm on all the social media platforms, uh, and it's simply at Dr. John White. Uh, and you can also reach out to me directly on WebMD. Someone will, will forward your stuff to me, uh, and I do read all my own emails. Awesome. And then you had mentioned that you had a podcast as well. 
I do. So I have a podcast with iHeartRadio. It's called Spotlight On as part of our Health Discovered podcast at WebMD. And we actually have a show that, and that was what I was referencing, called Your Health on Tech, where we talk about the latest technologies in healthcare. Awesome. Well, John, thank you so much for your time. This was an amazing conversation. Honestly, I feel much better after talking to you. So thank you very yeah. much. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for your doing it. Good example. You reached out to me yeah. and, and I said, I'd be happy to do this. And I'm glad I did. So thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>